This is the Question in Bodies podcast, a catalogue of inconclusive conversations about culture, gender, bodies, literature, movies and horror. With me, your host, Howard David Ingham. In this episode, Dignity and Disease, Health and Horror, with guest Dr. Catherine Belling. Hello and welcome to the Question in Bodies podcast. The answer is an Associate Professor of Medical Humanities and Bioethics at Northwestern University, Weinberg School of Medicine, a film fan, a writer about things and someone who's been on Jeopardy. Who is Catherine Belling? Hello. Hi, Howard. (laughs) Thanks for that, I think. (laughs) They they actually make you record what they call a hometown howdy for Jeopardy, where they where they to show your the sort of advertise on the commercial your your local um, television market, and you have to ask that kind of question about yourself, and then say who is Catherine Belling, and then look surprised. And I I did it so incredibly badly. I don't think they ever used it. Uh, yeah, that was. So, um, a, how did you do, by the way? Uh, I came second. Well, M- M- yeah. I mean, I, I never, I never really got the what you call it, the buzzer thing, to work very well. So I knew a lot more answers than I got to answer. And then by the time I finally had the buzzer figured out, it, I managed to ring through, and I hadn't even like heard what the question was. I was so busy thinking about the buzzer, so I had no idea what the answer was. So it was, it was kind of humiliating. Um, <laughs> maybe realize I've got the reflexes of a cactus, but, um, but, but it was, it was, it was certainly, you know, educational. It was, it was really interesting. I will, I will wake up screaming the answers of questions that I, you know, that I got wrong probably for a while. <laughs> but, it's a moment of existential horror, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Completely. Speaking about <clears throat> existential uh-huh. horror, this brings us on to the subject of this episode of the podcast. Because as a professor of bioethics and things with an interest in horror, mm-hmm. I wanted to get you on to talk about death, illness, health, and horror. Mm-hmm. Since you have some very interesting propositions about this in some of the conversations we've had about this. Would you like to kick us off with some some um, propositions? Okay, well, I mean, my, my primary, the, the sort of discovery, that, the thing that made me realize why, I mean, as, as someone who kind of got raised as a little kid watching things that um, I, you know, probably sh- shouldn't have when I was, you know, too young to, to not be completely freaked out. Um, and was always interested in horror and and wrote a story when I was a really little kid about um, some campers who I think I was probably about seven got some campers who got attacked by lions in the night and the lions the lions broke into their tents and ate all their meat wow. which you know is bad because the lions ate their food right except that the drawing showed that no what I meant was the lions ate their meat like their bodies um, and yeah yeah exactly um and and my 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 the teacher contacted my parents and said that um it was morbid and disturbing and I've always the title of this horror book when it eventually comes out is going to be morbid and disturbing and it's really about that the idea that you know like being interested in our meat is um is 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 something that children shouldn't be and yet they are we are um, and in some ways, I think my involvement in medicine and medical education has been a sort of anxious effort to to make my fascination with horror slightly more respectable. And I think there's some interesting stuff going on there 
about respectability, and which I think is, you know, for medicine, decorum is incredibly important and horror is thought of as fundamentally not decorous as breaking all the rules. And, and, and that's how it works as a, as a genre, I think, in a lot of ways. And we could think about that. And so, so, so I mean, growing up, I moved my interest in horror, first of all, into Shakespeare. And I think we talked about my, my PhD was all on, on bloodletting and, and uh, public anatomies in Renaissance drama. Right. And then I moved from that to the sort of next step along via the medical part to be doing medicine. But I've gradually come around to realizing that I think one of the important things missing from medicine and medical education and the way doctors are trained and healthcare providers in general is that, hor- that medicine is about horror. And it's about the things that make us feel horror. And yet within medicine, what you're supposed to do is civilize that, exclude all the chaotic, terrifying, gruesome things that are, you know, what, what, what we fear, what we, and what we go to the doctor for often. Um, And so it it seems, so, I mean, if I say to you, what are, what are horror movies? What, what is in a horror movie? What's the content of any horror story? Just throw out, you know, the content, the stuff. The content of Mm. a horror story. Yeah generally has fear mm-hmm. or disgust okay so those are and, the responses yeah mm-hmm. and that's how it's I- fear or disgust and that is generally related in some way to death either mm-hmm. existentially mm-hmm. or in a metaphorical it could be in a metaphorical sense the death of right. the self um right. but it could just as easily be actual death or injury or mm-hmm. mutilation, or something, mm-hmm. or basically, basically the ill health, isn't it? It's fear right. or disgust yeah. about my point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. compromising of health. Yeah, um, right. Exactly. Or you know, or um, and you could sort of expand from that monsters, creatures that are born that 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 don't look normative, right? Um, be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, or 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 mutilated or malformed bodies. Um, yeah. Or, or just the stuff that we've got inside us, right? I mean, when you, you know, think about horror movies, is when you actually get to see the things that we have inside us that normally we you can't see, right? Um, gore, guts, gruesomeness, all those things. And and if you think about, then you think about what is the content of medicine? It's exactly the same thing, right? I mean, it's death. It's about preventing or avoiding death. <clears throat> it's about dealing with what happens to you know doing autopsies. What happens? What do you do with a dead person after they've died? Um, before they get disposed of, and how that works, um, and then how do you how do you fix broken bodies? How do you open them up and go inside and look at what's going on in there in an effort to try and make them better? Um, you know, how do you what do you do with blood? I mean, in, in my sort of Renaissance stuff, you know, you make a person better by making them bleed, collecting you know great big bowls of blood, and then you look at the blood and try and figure out from what the blood looks like what's wrong with the person. You do diagnostic phlebotomy um but i mean so 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 the things that we think of as as producing horror are exactly the things that medicine deals with all the time and yet medicine says we don't do horror this isn't about horror the first thing that you do in order to become a doctor is cut up a dead person and not be horrified you're not allowed to be horrified right because then you don't have what it takes to be a doctor in theory i'm character in theory, I, I remember very clearly um, a GP um, who's no longer at my GP's practice anymore. He's moved on, but he he was my GP for some years, and I've never known anybody in the medical profession who had such a dis- disgust for the workings of the human body. I remember I had a 
had a cyst in my mouth one time and the look on his face when he found it and identified it and was like do you want me to pop it in a kind of like please god don't tell me you want me to pop it kind of way i, I let him off it, it sort of it, it got better on its own good <laughs> Uh, it sounds like he might have been in the wrong job. He might have been in the wrong job. Or maybe that's the stuff that he, yeah, nurses are supposed to do or something. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, the look on that guy's face when he saw the cyst in my mouth. <laughs> yeah. It, it'll stay with me. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, there's the disgust part as well, right? The yeah. sense that, that that horror as a as a feeling is this mixture of fear and disgust and curiosity, I would say. For Indeed, the I mean, this is kind of the... Going back to cysts, actually, this is kind of kind of the <laughs> kind of the nexus of the the whole sort of like twi um, YouTube subculture of the popper oh, yeah. video. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, because this is oh. one. This is one um, dermatologist who's got herself an entire TV show. Yeah, the reality channels. Yeah, no, and there's there's work to be yes. done on how that works, right? And and it's very interesting that when when the stuff that comes out is white rather than red, mm. the rules are somehow different and the response is different. And I'm really curious about. I mean, you could sort of you know think about theoretically how that works. I mean, it always makes me think of Ash in Alien, right, who bleeds white and how that makes yes. him way scarier in a whole lot of ways. But at the same time, we have this idea that the sight of blood is this really shocking thing and 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 the the yeah the, the sort of pus coming out of an abscess is is somehow seen as a different not quite a horror more about disgust um yeah. and i'm not quite sure why that is maybe part of it is that the that coming out is a good thing because it means it'll heal whereas blood coming out is normally seen as now as a wound that needs to be fixed i don't know it's, it's a difficult one isn't it oh it's gross stuff right gross stuff it is gross. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, I'm, I, was, I was thinking because obviously I, I did actually rewatch Alien the other day, and, um, mm -hmm. and in fact, both of the first two Alien films, you see the the android being othered by bleeding white, and yes, it's interesting. Of course, in the second film, it's Lance Henriksen, mm -hmm. Bishop, mm -hmm. and of course, is a heroic and um sympathetic yeah. character in that yeah, film I love that flip yeah yeah and when he is hurt it is not it is signified in a very different way isn't it it's 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 not mm -hmm. creepy in the way that when ian holmes ash gets knocked over the head that first time mm -hmm. and there's a mm -hmm. trick of white that runs and it's, it comes in an extreme close-up Right, and you don't know what, and he sort of looks up at it, and you see this, and you're like, "Wait, what? What? What yeah, is what, what's going on?" Because of course you haven't had that. Um, you don't know yet. Yeah, I think that's part of the difference from the beginning as one of those right. guys. Right, right. Yeah. Whereas for Bishop, you know a little bit about the anatomy of of androids now, so it's 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 not it, it's not as as shocking, and you're already more yeah, sort of willing to yeah. accept what that looks like. And then you see Ash's disembodied head, which is connected up because they're trying to get him to tell them how to kill the thing. Right. And right. it's covered in this white yeah. goo mm -hmm. the whole mm. time. When he says, before they turn him off, you have my sympathies. Yes. Uh, it's lovely. Yeah. With that weird voice. Moment. Horror as well is undignified as well. Now, you sent me a piece that you'd written recently about mm. dignity. 
yeah. as well. Um, horror is about because because horror is an undignified reaction, and of course, you talk about how a doctor, if they're doing it properly, um, mm -hmm. shouldn't be horrified by the inner workings of the human body because it's about dignity, isn't it? It's about that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, to go back to and we can talk about. I mean, the dignity part in that that article was partly also about end of life questions and yes. the whole idea of death with dignity and what that means and I mean partly sort of doing with my bioethics hat on too and thinking about how that how, how we how how ethicists and how medicine uses the idea of dignity to kind of maintain control over something that is very very hard to control you know, yes. death and what and what and what what a dead body is no matter how no matter, no matter how dignified the death supposedly was what you're left with is a corpse um, and if you leave the corpse around long enough, it will become utterly horrifying and disgusting, no matter what, right? Because that's yeah. what happens. Partly because of all the other living things that hang out and take over, um, bacteria and things. Right? Yeah. Um, but 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 from a medical perspective, I mean, it's something that I've that I actually this was how I first got involved with the, the medical humanities was when I was working on. Um, the anatomy theatres in in the 16th century and looking at the connections between you know the fact that pub, people paid you know bought tickets to go and look at public anatomies through the medical wow. schools in 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 Italy originally um, and and some say that's how Shakespeare first developed selling tickets at the Globe Theatre was because of the the model of selling tickets to go and see dissections um, but so so while I was doing that for my as a as a grad student, um, I found out that the medical school were having their the students write and write essays about their anatomy cadavers, and they were just looking for a grad student to come and you know grade them. So I was like, okay, I would you know I was fascinated, and so I got actually managed to go into the anatomy lab and and see how it worked, um, which is sort of how I got my foot in the door with with the medical wow. education stuff. Um, but but it's fascinating how. You know, and that, that's years ago, but still there's this incredible ambivalence with, with people who are becoming doctors who are, there's this terrible, this incredible pressure to be able to go, you know, encounter a dead body, some of them for the first time ever, and be able to look at it. I mean, I had one student say to me in a class, I saw, I saw a, a dead a person's face today for the first time ever. And the first thing I had to do was peel it off the skull. And I don't know what to do with that. And she was very worried at even admitting that she found that upsetting because the assumption was somehow you should be able to do that without feeling anything. And that was partly what got me onto this weight. Now, something, something needs to be thought about differently here because that should feel like horror. Yeah. It, it should also feel educational and you should be able to, you know, and you should be able to hold those two things into, yes, you're learning the anatomy of the face and the skull. So that's the point. But if you don't recognize all the other things that it means to be the last person to have ever seen this person's face and your job as a student to be to deconstruct that face if you don't recognize the kind of existential implications of that then how are you going to manage a patient who comes in who thinks they've got a monster growing inside them which is what you know cancer tells people and they come in and they say doctor i'm you know i've got these symptoms i'm terrified at some level I've, I think there's something terrible growing inside me. I need you to reassure me. And, you know, a doctor who's like, oh, we don't do monsters. You know, we will, we sort of narrow this down to a kind of scientifically manageable subject um, means that patients are left with this 
the absolutely genuine horror and the doctors are left with it too and they don't know what to do with it because medicine is not supposed to go there yes i mean you've got the sort of um balance between um detachment on the one Mm -hmm. hand and compassion on the other and you have to somehow find a way to make those work together to create a sort of medical dignity yes nice that's a nice way of putting it yeah I'm reminded actually of um, a dreadful movie that we mm-hmm. haven't seen, a German movie starring Franco Patenti from about 20 yes. years ago called Anatomy, mm-hmm. um, which suddenly came to mind, which um, I think is a good one to sort of talk about. And that's one, um, Franco Patenti plays a med, med student uh-huh. and discovers that there's something going on. They use um, Gunther von Hagen's body, body worlds exhibit. Right. Mm-hmm. as well as part of the horror because it turns out that people are being vivisected against their will perfectly healthy people are being vivisected and then plastinated and wind up right. in the von Hagen's exhibit yeah including... or, or rather in the medical school's incredible specimen collection which is a von Hagen's exhibit yes. yeah the, 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 the famous in, including uh, the protagonist's best friend at one point yes exactly which is somewhat shocking yeah um uh yes and and what i mean i so partly in response to the student who was you know sort of distressed about how how to handle you know her her feelings about about um dissecting her cadaver's face um i actually put together a course it was a sort of five weeks seminar we have a whole lot of different humanities seminars and i just designed this as one and offered it Um, i've taught it a couple of times Sort of to to do to look at you know partly the history of 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 anatomy and you know the kind of rules that emerged around around you know how bodies were got and you know sort of earlier um, you know it was part of part of of capital punishment that was you know if you were a bad enough um, criminal yeah. you got dissected after you'd been killed and that was part of the punishment um, but so all the the different pieces and then one of one of the things that we looked at was. You know, if you if you think of a movie or a TV show or anything that's about medical students, there will always be an anatomy scene because that is the that is the thing that people associate with becoming a doctor, right? Yeah, it, it always that that's the you know when you when you ask what do medical students do, you know they honestly do not spend ninety percent of their time cutting up dead people. Far from it, and yet that's the that's the way the public thinks about how you become a doctor. And, and it's always used. Right. It's even in Raw, which is about mm-hmm. a vet. Right. The dissection um, is, yeah. Because they, they have a dog. Right. That part of the horror is that one of the dogs is the actual family dog who has been unjustly put down. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then becomes a... goated because Garance Marie's character, Justine, has eaten her sister's finger. Mm-hmm. And, and blamed the dog. And blamed the dog. Yeah. And eating your so sister's finger, that's, that's, a whole that's all the taboos, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And I mean, we can, I mean, I, I guess you to go back to what we were talking about before, um, the, the one of the other sort of important content things of horror, right, is, is if we are just meat, right, um, what does it mean when humans are food? And, and I think that's right. one of the most, you know, and I mean, it comes back to, you know, being dead, but also more, you know, more, more broadly. I mean, I think that's part of the, the, the sort of the deeper, more existential horror is if 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 I am just stuff, and more than that, if I'm if if to some other creature I'm just food, 
um, then then you know th then the rest stops making sense in the way we really need it to. Um, and that has been the foundation of really so much horror literature going right back to when horror literature became a thing of its own outside of folklore. You know, the, uh -huh. the, you know, all of the vampire stories from the 19th century are essentially about the fear of um, being in some way consumed. Mm -hmm. um, the zombie story. You have Lovecraft who essentially goes, what if God exists objectively? and just wants to nom you, you know, <laughs> right. The, the fear of being eaten mm -hmm. is very much part of that fear of being consumed, isn't it? And right, right. And of, and of therefore not being, you know, of, of, of having the same sort of moral value as as food which is not a lot except you know it's useful useful as nutrition i mean if you think about fairy you know folklore and fairy tales i mean the, the wolf that wants to eat the yeah you know it's little red riding hood or the or the bears that are going to eat um goldilocks or the you know i mean it's, it's so many of those stories are about exactly that children trying to figure out whether they're just food or whether there's something else seems like an important piece of 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 Yes, every, everybody's had a relative who, when they were little, told them that they could eat them alive. Yes, <laughs> right. Eat you all up. Yeah. At some point, that relative forgot what it was like being a child, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which itself is quite terrifying. To be a child. Or to uh, forget. And to forget so, being a child as well. Yes. Yeah, and sad. Yeah. Yes, it is. This is a relative who can't communicate with children to such an extent that they come up with something that would have terrified them when they were little. Mm. Yeah, maybe because they're scared because they know that the child still knows that they could eat them alive if they just got a chance. These children haven't drawn that line quite so clearly yet, perhaps. Absolutely. There's a lot of sadness in in horror as well, which is something that people don't often seem to address or write about. They're mm -hmm. so mm. obsessed with the disgust and the fear. Right. That right. the miserable sadness of these things sometimes passes them completely by. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And I, I think, yeah, I mean I think it's one of the reasons that horror tends to be treated as as not very respectable. The idea that, that somehow it's uh gleeful about the gruesome stuff um rather than recognizing that yeah that it, it can be i guess elegiac as well i mean i think that's why I, I i you know if you want to talk about movies ari aster i mean i think uh, right. midsummer and hereditary together um capture that 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 sadness in such incredibly complicated interesting ways that um they are bleak movies aren't they yeah um and also yeah yeah bleak and but i yeah also just completely fascinating and um mm. um i mean i guess i found them less bleak partly because of the sense of 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 the director being and I, we talked about this a bit about being so in control that i felt in both of them i completely trust this person to do something that is going to be meaningful on multiple watchings at all sorts of levels that you know so that so that the bleakness seemed to be sort of over you know overcome by the sense of there being a 
um, you could almost say like the god of the story, the director, the teller, right. who yes. so absolutely knew what he was doing, um, which is, is quite rare. I found it in the second, the remake of Suspiria as well, which I'm not sure if you've seen it. But I have seen that. And I've it was much hated by well. many. So. A lot of people hated that, but I think they hated it because it wasn't um, Dario Argento's candy-coloured right. sketch horror Different from back thing, in the yeah. day, which is, it's not exactly gleeful, but I, I think, you know, there is glee in a lot of Italian movies of that period. Yes. This collection, this, this succession of scenes which are elis- variously elis- intended to elicit disgust, fear, dread, mm-hmm. things. Horror, right, as a feeling, right. Uh, yeah, and, and it is about the feelings, um, uh-huh. because you can't yeah. think too hard about why a <laughs> European dancing school has a mm-hmm. room that's entirely full of barbed wire and nothing else. <laughs> exactly. Also, honestly, uh, a, a, a dancing school that's introduced as like one of the great ballet schools of Europe where the dancing is really bad. Argento is clearly really not interested in dance. Um, I mean, those people were, you know, not really very good at ballet. Um, and I think that's one of the differences, whereas the, you know, the, the Guaranino film is, I mean, the dance is, is fantastic and it's also completely rooted in a whole history of, 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 of dance in the 20th century and, yes. and knows exactly it's I mean I, I don't know if you've ever thought about it being you know the, the main the main performance is called folk and I've actually been working on something about folk horror with the v-o-l-k right. and, and how that connects with folk horror and there are I mean that's another conversation but um, it is another conversation I mean we could go back very... to like the weird history of <laughs> dance as yes. well you get people oh. like Gurdjieff back at the beginning of the um 20th century who was himself both a cult guru and a ballet teacher. Yeah, I mean, um, I got I got very interested in the, the if you read this, uh, Dave Kajanich's screenplay for um, Suspiria, his, right. his, um, his epigraph is Goebbels saying the dance must be, cheer, you know, be pretty and cheerful. And, you know, and, and the fact that um, uh, like the Mary, what was her name? I can't remember now, that the, 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 the actual dance in Suspiria is based on her work she was um, held up as the example of degenerate, degenerate dance, right. degenerate art by the Nazis. And the, I mean, the film is playing through all of that idea of dance as being, you know, as bad as witches and as inseparable from, you know, from uh, anyway. But Yes, which, which gives us that wonderful scene where someone is basically murdered by a dance mm. act in a, in a form of sympathetic magic. Absolutely beautiful. And which brilliant. I think is probably the best scene in either version of Suspiria. Although I'll probably get maybe yeah, yeah, and take into a wicker man for no. that. The but other thing horror isn't the only mode of horror that you know you have that sort of sense no. of health to. I mean, they're all health unhealthy in some sort of sense, mm-hmm. and they're all about that fear of death as well, and that sadness comes through in certain films in that sense. So you think of a film like. Amy Simetz's recent film, She Dies Tomorrow, mm-hmm. which um, I, I managed to rewatch some of it last night, actually. Um, so it's kind of on my mind. But that film, if you haven't seen it, um, those of you listening at home, there will be spoilers. But it's about a number of people who gain the absolute certainty that they will be dead in 24 hours 
And when they tell other people about it, these people also develop that certainty. So the actual certainty of imminent death is itself a disease, a plague. Mm -hmm. The contagion, yeah. What did you make of it? I loved it and I found it incredibly hard to watch. I watched it in, in bits and then had to leave. I think the the sense of certainty and dread with the, you know, the first character who realizes this, and of course you first think, well, she's deluded. Um, she's, and drunk. she's right, and drunk, and drunk, yes, she has relapsed and she, right, good point. Um, and and then when you, you realize that she knows and that it is knowledge, it's not belief and it's not delusion, she knows that she will. And there's a point at which we suddenly like realize that she is right and start to believe to know with her that she is going to die tomorrow. The, it, the the film does this really extraordinary thing where you you are suddenly with her. I mean, that to some extent I started to, you know, the contagion reaches outside the film. I mean, I, I had this very visceral sense of dread myself, um, which was fascinating. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, it, I mean, it probably goes more than any other horror film I've seen to the really fundamental thing that we fear, which is, dying right or being yes. dead becoming dead becoming dead think about it that way um and and connected i think i said to you the it fascinated me the part where one of the characters goes to the doctor and says i'm going to die tomorrow as if to say well so could you please you know make that not happen and the doctor at first tries to be reassuring you know oh don't be silly there's nothing wrong with you 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 know and, and implies something which i'm also really interested in and have worked on is, is hypochondria the idea that you know right. you think you're going to die tomorrow because you're imagining things and you're probably just trying to get attention and have all sorts of other reasons um and then there's the, this incredible moment where the doctor suddenly realizes that he's going to die tomorrow too um and that shift where he suddenly he loses all that all the decorum right and all the sort of clinical power of the white coat and all those things and suddenly i mean he sort of folds up and needs her to comfort him he's sort of almost crying like a baby he kind of you know there's a sort of sudden recognition that we're going to die and of course the important part of that is we're all going to die tomorrow i mean it, you know we don't know how long the tomorrow is how far away right. it is but it's, there is nothing fantastical or supernatural or abnormal about that we just you know it might not be literally tomorrow it might be 10 years away or however long but you know it's it's not it's perfectly accurate and true yes the thing that produces the dread in the film and i think that's what's so brilliant is that is that what she's doing is just saying well yeah we are and what are we going to do about it and and the difference between the people who recognize that um, who are in our society called hypochondriacs, right? Because they actually recognize the truth that at some point that monster will grow inside them and they will be killed by it, whatever it turns out to be in their case. And yeah. the people who are like, who are capable because it's more efficient of saying, well, no, I'm going to be healthy forever because that's the only way I can actually function from day to day because if I actually recognize that I'm going to die, um, I might not be able to get out of bed. Um, you know, yeah. So it gets to that. It gets to that kind of truth in a way that, yeah, I, I thought was really brilliant. Really, yeah. Know, I, I thought it was one of the most disturbing films I'd seen for a long time in a very quiet kind of way. Yeah, I found it made me think about how every single attempt that people currently have going on of curing death is basically mm -hmm. bullshit. 
it's basically smoke and mirrors. Right. You have your um, transhumanist types, your, your Elon Musks and things who mm -hmm. think that uploading your consciousness into a machine will enable you to live forever. But that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense the more you think about it. Machines break probably more easily than bodies do in a lot of ways, but also, <laughs> but I know that's not really the point. No, and also, also consciousness. Also, also, it's a copy. Yeah, it's not and actually original. Um, no, and consciousness is embodied. I mean, we are yes. not conscious without our bodies. Yes, and consciousness depends upon the nexus of experiences that we have. The the experience of waking, the experience of a backache or a, mm -hmm. or a twinge in your tooth, mm -hmm. of yeah. um, an itch on the side yeah. of your torso, all of those things. And also pleasure, you know, yes. being in the sunshine or breathing or, you know, I mean, those are also part of it, which machines yes, indeed. don't have access to. Yeah. A glass of orange juice or mm. the breeze on your face. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying earlier about the monster as well, mm -hmm. the monster growing in you. And I was reminded, of course, that the word cancer itself. The crab. Yeah, it's the crab. And people thought that the crab was a spontaneously generated thing. Um, there is very interesting phenomenon which naturalists have started to notice called cancerification which mm -hmm. is essentially that um invertebrate animals even unrelated ones have a tendency to evolve into crabs they, wow okay that i had never heard of that the crab is the most common invertebrate form in terrestrial evolution Really? It will always turn into a crab. Um, the plant version of that is trees, where you yeah. have entirely unrelated families that all form into trees. But, but the idea of a crab actually being a common thing, that things tend towards the state of cancer, is <laughs> the stuff yeah. of horror in its own right. Uh, it's lovely, yeah. I mean, I mean obviously, going cool. back to dear old um, Lovecraft, or mm -hmm. as I like to call him, the other Howard, um, who, no, there are only two, yeah. There are only two in fantasy and sci-fi, and he's the other one. I think of the fact that so much of 20th century horror monster discourse depends upon the fact that that one guy, apart from the fact that he was obviously a hideous racist who deliberately said stuff like, I don't know about that Hitler guy's methods, but my heart's with him. But he had a phobia of marine fauna. Yes. And yes. as the most influential pulp horror writer of the early 20th century in America, suddenly it turns out that he's the reason why aliens and monsters have bug eyes, crab claws. And tentacles. Always tentacles, yeah. Always. I mean, when you were talking about the crabs, I would have guessed um, cephalopodization more than crabification. I mean, I, like to me, the octopus and squid is where everything is eventually going to go, but that's just, you know, my own, yeah. And because of intelligence. But why why immediately? Cthulhu is very squiddy, right? Octopuses as alien. 
<laughs> yes, of course, exactly. It's alien intelligence alive on Earth now. What yeah. more do you need? Yeah. Or if you're Italian, really good with pasta. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was telling you the boys. Uh, you, you should. I was telling you, you should watch the boys. There is an octopus scene, um, which you will you will remember this conversation when you get to it. Um, I'll <laughs> I think also of the movie Old Boy, as well, which I confess I have not seen. Oh, um, but I have heard that there is an octopus. Yeah, and live there... octopus is eaten. Yeah. Okay. Well, then, then, then clearly the scene in the boys was was uh, referring to that too. Yes. Okay. Um, we do have apparently the. The actor was Buddhist and Park Chan wound up hating Park Chan work because Park Chan work made him do it about seven times. Oh, yeah, I, I can't even eat the little ones when they're, they're, they're dead. They just, you know, but when sliced up, which is probably a moral um, criticism of me when they sliced up and calamari, I'm fine. But, but when you can actually see the entire creature, I. There's that is a point, though. There is a point at which a body ceases to be. A body where it becomes meat, yeah, and becomes meat, becomes raw materials, right. and um, then, yeah. And the when that point goes wrong, when that yeah, point horror. is awkward, there is a nexus of horror. So you think, Absolutely. of course, of the Wisconsin mass murderer Ed Gein, mm -hmm. who you know mass murdered people and then made um, household handicrafts, yeah with bits of the bodies, which of course, then you see in the original the Texas, Texas Chainsaw yeah. Massacre, mm -hmm. where they've got like a lampshade with faces on it mm -hmm. and stuff. And they're all people who used to work in a slaughterhouse. Right. And of course, we make things out of pieces, pieces of cattle, you know, leather, for instance. But when you yeah. shift that to the people who work there, it becomes unspeakable atrocity, which it is. I'm not saying it's not, but it is interesting how that shift works, right? Yes, that point where a body ceases to be a body and starts to be me. Yeah. Um, going back to Judy DeCorno's film Raw as well. Mm -hmm. That's a film about Food. where that line goes wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, to go back to Midsummer, true too, I think, I mean, the, the scene, the Atastupa, the scene with the two 72-year-old uh, yes. uh, people who um, arguably commit ritual suicide or are killed or are euthanized if that's the term you would use which most wouldn't I think in that context um but 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 what it yeah how we how we read that I think is is really really interesting in terms of that the, the dignity question which is part of what you know sort of fascinated me about yes. that scene in that film um the fact that within the context of the society that this is happening in it's seen as respectful and dignified right that they are you know they and and we have no sense that they don't want to do this they're obviously completely socialized within that society and this yeah. is what happens when you get to that age and they have the special meal and they drink the special stuff which we hope maybe anesthetizes them a bit <laughs> and and they're carried you know it's this thing you know sort of very respectful ritualized process that happens and then what Ariasta does is have us and the and the people in the community not up at the top of the cliff so that they just drop off and disappear which is what we want when people die right for them to just vanish and then we have the, but instead we're waiting at the bottom so we see what happens to their bodies when they hit the ground 
Um, I think I think there's, he's doing this really interesting thing. So from the perspective of the people who fall, the first one at least, right? She doesn't know what happened. She hits the ground and she is done for. She is dead. She's fine. But we have to confront the fact that a dead body is smashed up. And he's very deliberate with the face, with the face, which is the place where your identity as a human is, yeah. is the thing that's destroyed. And we have to think, okay, so from from her perspective, is this a good death? From the community's perspective, is it a good death? That yes, they think so. But then obviously we're, we're put in the position of the outsiders, the anthropologists who are supposedly yes. um, studying this community, and at least two of them cannot tolerate it at all. They go nuts. Yeah, and of course it's the English holidaymakers as well. Yes, exactly. Right. Who are just like, this Tourists. is horrendous, we're out of here. <laughs> yeah. And, Meanwhile, you know, you've got the competent anthropologist mm-hmm. who's standing there going, yep, knew it was going to yep. be like that. Right, and exactly. The incompetent anthropologist who's like, holy shit. Yeah, he throws up. Yeah, Christian. Yeah, he throws up. Yeah. Right. Um, and of course, the completely incompetent anthropologist who doesn't even turn up because he's... Right, yeah, he's off smoking his jewel or something. Yeah, he's something else and winds yeah. up winds up yeah. missing on the ancestor tree. Right, right. Yeah, he is the fool, literally, which is why he ends up being the head on the stick, right? He is... Yes, he is yeah, that's true. Um, and of course... Nobody gets out alive. I mean, the only innocent people in that film, obviously, are Simon and Connie and the bear. And the bear, yes. Yeah. The poor bears, yeah. It's not fair to the bear. The no. bear didn't ask for that. No. But, but um, <laughs> what's interesting is that the health of Simon and Connie's relationship doesn't save them. No. Well, I mean, we've talked a bit about this. I Yeah, how much this film is about is about relationships and what kind of relationships um yeah I mean I yeah I don't know how much time you have I could go on such a thing I think you know hereditary is about is about um the 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 nuclear family and all the things that can be inherited within a nuclear family that can go horribly wrong and you can define that psychiatrically which I and I think there's there's very interesting stuff about you know medical stuff about psychiatry and what is inherited and how we read what is inherited that is yeah. really interesting in that one but so you've got the nuclear family there and then in midsummer the first thing he does is destroy the nuclear family right you've got the sister uh, danny's sister who kills herself yeah. and her parents which completely cuts danny off danny's family is is destroyed so she's cut off and and she's surrounded by these other grad students who are also all as we are as grad students i think often young adults separated from their families and no longer part of a new family and no longer and not part of any solid community with clear ethical guidelines or customs or practices right. um, and are busy finding their own way and which is one of the reasons I think Christians I, I I don't I yeah I can defend some of what he does in certain ways I mean he's awful I would never want any kind of relationship with him thank you <laughs> but he could have just left Danny the moment her family died he could have been like well I'm out of here I don't want to deal with this um he could have been worse. Let's put it that way. Well, yeah, we I mean, can... it's not the problem with Christian is that he's crappy because he's just bang average. Weak, yeah. And he's that's the when he's weak. And mm. he's it might have been better her. to leave her for both of them. Mm-hmm. But he didn't have the guts to do so. That's... Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm he's just, there. He's just this depressingly ordinary dude. Mm-hmm. But also because he is unmoored, he has no yeah. he has no guidelines in how to behave, and I think that's in in some ways all of them are presented that way, and they're set against the Holga, who are, you know, where no where, where literally no one thinks independently. 
and no one feels into you know you, you can't have an emotion without everyone else having the same you know acting out the same yes and, and acting out and screaming and screaming in your face right. and, you and one of the things one of the most appalling things to me in that that whole place was the the baby crying i don't know if you noticed that you hear when they're all sleeping in that sort of communal sleeping house and you keep hearing the baby crying and at one point someone says and they put scissors in the in the in the the cradle with the baby and they say well she's crying because we've had to separate her from her mother because everybody has to be separate you know you can't have any close connections with any individual other because it's you yeah. know they've got to become ants in a colony um so you've got these two incredibly you know the sort of two poles at the opposite edges of you know hereditary which is the normal so-called normal yeah nucle nuclear family um and so those three together i think he he's playing out those three kind of ways in which we learn yes. how to behave all of which are horrifying Cut and dried either um i think it's, it's also interesting obviously to sort of see how he treats developmental disability yes as well mm -hmm. and if there's I, I think if there's actually like a big flaw in his movies it's mm -hmm. the probably accidental accidental equation of for example an autistic child being a possessed child right in hereditary yeah maybe i yes um i have a slightly different take on that i think charlie presents as autistic um she also has and i can uh, i will tell you the name of it because i actually checked it um the same uh, uh cladocranial dysplasia the actress has uh, molly uh, millie right. shapiro um that, that she's very, very sort of deliberately presented as being completely non-normative non in all sorts of ways. Um, and and yet, the, I think the big question in the film is, is that hereditary? Is that congenital hereditary? Or is it something that has been produced in her? She also at one point says, um, my, you know, my grandmother wanted me to be a boy. And we know that, of course, they do want, you know, that's yeah, why she, has, to be a boy. She, she can't survive because her brother has to be the one who who inherits the the you know the the real thing that is being passed on in this family, which is not um, mental illness or or neurodi neurodiversity, unless you think of you know demon possession as a form of neurodiversity, which <laughs> we could, yeah, I mean, well, I mean that's a whole new well, podcast, isn't it? Yeah, right. Seriously, yes, exactly. But I think I think he's. I mean, I I do, I I don't think it's it's accidental what he's doing with her. I think. I think part of it is is a deliberate. I think he's exploring the idea of what is inherited in families, whether it's genetic or behavioral or occult, right. um, and how those things are passed on. And so I think you know, and the gender part too of her very clearly, be, you know, sort of not you know having been told that she was supposed to be a boy and she's not as useful because she isn't, um, and the the. So, you know, and she has a kind of a sort of slightly Tourette's OCD, you know, and the, the, the you know, with the, the click and the, um, that I think, I think he's being more careful with her than, than a, a quick reading of, of her being as held up as being bad or possessed. Yes. I think yeah. it's, a, I think he's doing something more deliberate and complex than that. Um, I, I mean, you can see that in Midsummer. I'm sorry. You can see that in Midsummer with the disabled yes. child who right. has been, bred as part of a eugenics well right also they say program, yeah mm -hmm. deliberately inbred um mm -hmm. and it's one of the flags that these people are yeah basically nazis yeah 
along so with actual far-right slogans being on banners literally across you, the road yeah. as you go in. Yeah, um, that Esther has upside down, so you have to be able to pause and read it and translate. In yeah. Swedish, yes. Mm -hmm. And, and Swedish, um, yeah. as I mentioned in the previous episode, um, a lovely, lovely Swedish person um, translated them for me right. and was like, yeah. yep, they're far-right slogans. Mm -hmm. And that you get the distinct impression that the Horgolanders are, they're basically Nazis as Nazis would like to appear to the world. Right, maybe, yeah. They're how fascists want to look. Yes. F fascists, uh, yeah, I would say, certainly, yeah. Um, I mean, the absolute social control. And yeah. I mean, just for example, the, you know, the people that, that the, the people who are sent out to find um, the, the tourists to come in for the, for the, um, the summer festival, um, they're, they're very carefully chosen, obviously, you know, and, and, mm. and Danny and Christian are there for um, eugenic purposes, for breeding. Clearly, the others are there for other reasons. Um, yeah. And there's a very clear racial distinction in terms of who, who they would uh, welcome into their gene pool and who are there to be sacrificed. Who would indeed, indeed. Do you, have the, do you have the clever guy, the good-looking, brave, moral and athletic guy, <laughs> or the doughy, unreliable dimwit? Who's white? Who's yeah. white? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, who afterwards has to be uh, catharted? He is, you know, he he is the one who is who's who is put inside the bear, um, because once you have his genes, you don't need him anymore, and that's yeah. very much also built into the very perverse. He's a stud ball that goes Very to internally the coherent logic. Sorry, He's I didn't. Stud ball that goes to the slaughter. Or the scapegoats, in fact, yes, which itself is very much, I mean, deliberately the scapegoat was was something that you literally tied all your sins to and then mm -hmm. cooked. Mm -hmm. Right. And they say something about we with you, we will, we will uh, drive out the worst of our affects. And they actually use that word the word, when they talk to the bear, the... Um, yeah, that he is being he is he is the catharsis of the of the um the, he is the absolutely the catharsis yeah and then you have danny's catharsis her sort of much more literal catharsis that scene where she you know for i don't know if you've noticed most of the way through the film she does this all the time she's constantly covering her mouth and finally she starts screaming and throwing up and it's yes. rather well, you know, that that's her but um uh there is no self left by the time she's done with that she she completely you know removes from herself everything that you know so that that smile at the end is there is no Danny left there, and she may be happier but the but she is no longer Danny. Yeah, and she loses her language among other things. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's quite brilliant. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of other things that we um, directions that we could go in with this discussion. Yeah, another film that you wanted to talk about um, going about diseases. Another film I was actually one that I haven't talked about much with many people, but it's the ruins. Oh, okay. I was, I was, I was getting sidetracked. I was going to talk about the fly, but um, oh, we'll I'm talk sure about the fly in a minute. A lot about about Cronenberg's fly, but the the ruins, the ruins fascinates me because it's um, par partly because the novel. I'm really interested in the novel and the film and how they relate to each other, and right. and this is sort of part of the book that I'm working on is how is how things that can be described in a novel and, and the novel. I strongly recommend it. It's by Scott Smith and it's 
really like just as a work of literature it's really brilliant um he takes it from the point of view of each of the four main characters who are these four tourists spring breakers who end up um on this mayan ruin which they then can't leave because it's inhabited by a contagious plant right a plant a man-eating plant a human-eating plant that also um if it leaves will will spread presumably all over the world right and will end up eating humans and take over the planet so it's being controlled by the local mayan people on this ruin and they once they've set foot on the ruin they cannot leave because and the mayans will kill them they're infected yes and at least one of the characters just wind up at the end of an arrow yes oh yes right at the beginning to tell us how serious they are yeah and they've salted the land all around the the ruin so that the the you know the plant yeah. can't escape. Yeah, and they're yeah. effectively yeah. containing it. Except, of course, mm-hmm. um, I don't know how it's the book ends. I haven't read it, but the film ends with um, the one, the, the final girl, mm-hmm. as it were, being taken away in a jeep. Yes, with a close up of the plant. Riding. You can see a little of the vine on her head, and and um, well, I won't do spoilers. Except I will say that the ending of the novel is much, much better. Um, right. So yeah, you should read it. <laughs> Much better than that. But, but so, so, so there's so many interesting things going on in that, partly because it's obviously about contagion and containment and because it's, you, you know, so thinking about the, it's not folk horror at all, but thinking about how it's about people, you know, tourists out of place in this, in this different, you know, this right. place where they think they have, they can be safe and they have control until they realise that they don't um, and that they're trapped and then sort of watching the process of how, you know, all the dynamics break down. But also because one of the four is a medical student, or is in the pro- course, yeah. it varies between the book and the film, um, and his response to you know being able to solve all the problems, which includes uh, carrying out an amputation, which is the sort of one of the set piece scenes, is this yes. horrendous. Um, and then the other character who um, starts to believe that the plant is growing inside her. And we have that whole hypochondria thing of, you know, oh, don't be stupid. You, you know, you just, and then realizing that no, actually the plant is growing inside her um, and the sort of gradual process of trying to remove it. Um, that does, so that it works, I mean, it just works on a whole lot of different levels in terms of body horror and in terms of, of how uh, humans, it, it's sort of, it's almost like a sort of case study of humans trying to make sense of an, of a, a completely insane absurd situation you're a man-eating plant but at the same time it works really really um as a really nice kind of I don't want to call it an allegory or even a metaphor but in some ways of of how we manage something that is actually quite familiar you know um severe injury that needs to be dealt with I mean I've been thinking about that in relation to 127 hours you know the film about the 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 guy who gets stuck in the canyon and has to saw his arm off yeah and how that yeah, and sort of, you know, how, how pain works on film in relation to how it works when someone's telling their own story, like he is in his in the book that the film's based on. Yes. Um, anyway, but I could go off. I mean, they're all they're just they're all sorts of really interesting um, sort of connections with with yeah with with managing disease, with managing contagion, with responding to again, you know, the monster growing inside you. I have I have a you know I've got this vine growing in me someone has to cut it out and if someone else won't I will and then what that means for you know like what part of me is human if I'm cutting off pieces of me because I think I've got this monster plant growing inside me um so it plays out all the the kind of really familiar things in terms of disease and pandemics and people who believe that they are sick and people who are really sick 
and how we respond to those, even though it's in this very neat little setting that the whole film pretty much happens in, you know, this tiny space, um, and yet works through a whole range of really interesting responses to to body danger, I guess you could call yes. it. Yes, so, um, yes. Also, also thinking about it, I'm reminded of Jeff Vandermeer's um, Southern Reach books as well, and the yes. first book, yes. of course, the narrator is a biologist. Mm -hmm. And is um, is accompanied by a psychologist, as well as a surveyor and an anthropologist. The linguist doesn't make it and chickens out and goes back early. It's a pity. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't know if you have you read some um, the Southern Reach books. No, I, I've I've seen uh, the film, the name of which I'm now forgetting. Annihilation. Annihilation. Yes. Doesn't actually bear yeah, a whole lot of resemblance to the book at all. Oh, okay. That's well. I must read them. Yeah. Um, highly recommend them. Um, Good. I will. And, and will not. Um, will not spoil them. But there's a similar sort of thing going on with containment as oh. well, and the curiosity. Of course, you can't talk about monstrous transformations to the human body without talking about Cronenberg. Right, of course. Really. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I mean, the, I really got started on the horror stuff of, of actually, you know, so talking about horror not being perfectly res sort of respectable, of finally deciding, okay, I'm actually going, my next project will be about horror in medicine. The part of the reason that I got to that point was my previous book is about hypochondria and, a, and hypochondriasis as what used to be a psychiatric um, diagnosis, although it is no longer for right. reasons I won't go into. Um, but but the the sort of central chapter of, of that book is you know there, it goes through different things, the, the different rules of you know be careful, be responsible, um, and then be afraid. Um, and of course, if I'm talking, you know that you you can't not you can't use that title and not talk about the fly. And I realized rewatching and writing about the fly how. Um, absolutely it describes the experience of someone who has symptoms and at first thinks they are um quite a good sign right he's actually not feeling bad i mean he's at, at the beginning he's sort of turning into you know super fly right he's got super super um uh what do you call it super abilities and things and then obviously gradually he breaks down as he becomes less and less human um and you've got you know, to go back to our, our very original part of the conversation, you know, the incredible fingernail scene where, you know, and the various sort of human parts of him <laughs> like, you know, sort of fall, fall away. Um, but at, at some point he actually, he says, I think I have some kind of a cancer. Um, right. And the film really tracks out the process of having a disease, which for him and, and more so for the, for the audience turns him into a monster. Um, which he begins by reading as a as a kind of improvement, and then gradually recognizes that um, you know he is probably dying. And there's that crucial moment where he looks in the mirror and he says, "Is this how it begins? Am I dying?" And you know, which yeah. is the sort of point that many people you know sort of feel a lump or or have a first symptom and say, "Is this the beginning of the end? Is this the beginning of the way things are going? You know, of how I'm going to die." Um, and then gradually gets to the point where actually he's kind of, do, you know, once he's got to the the being able to walk on the ceiling stage, he's almost adapted to not being human anymore. Mm. Um, 
Um, but then eventually, because because of various things we don't need to go into, eventually has to be euthanized by the Gina Davis character, right? Where he asks her to end his life, and she does. Yeah. And in many ways, that that's not, you know, that I mean, it's an extraordinarily moving scene for something so, you know, for the killing of something which is looks like such a complete monster, and yet at the end we we are well, from my point of view, we talk about sadness, right? It seems like an incredibly sad ending too. Um, but yep, you yeah. disagree. You disagree. <laughs> um, and then, and then, of course, mixed in also, you've got she becomes pregnant and gives birth to this thing, which, um, in her dream at least, is is a giant maggot, which David Cronenberg is the is the obstetrician who delivers it, right? Um, yes. But but so so you've got there also. I mean, it connects with you know the, the the pregnancy part too. With you know, I have something growing inside me. I don't know what it is, um, and that piece too. So so. Writing about that made me realize that hypochondria is really about horror. It is about the fear that there is something, the thing inside you that's going right. to kill you. And of course, you know, every every medical you know disease um, awareness week that says you should go and get tested for this, you know, even though you're feeling completely healthy, you need to get your mammogram or your whatever, is, is really setting up that thing that you might feel fine. But your monster might already be growing inside you. You just might not know about it yet. And, and I always that... focus on sexual characteristics as well. As well. Yes. You know, they, they particularly focus on those as the things you should be testing. Testing, yeah. Your breasts, your testicles. <laughs> right. right. I mean, I mean, Cronenberg. Cronenberg does that a lot. I think one of the things that people often get wrong about Cronenberg is that they think his films are kind of chilly. And they're really not. They're, they're really quite, um, often quite moving, oddly. Um, I think so. I, well, yeah. So perhaps in the really 80s, sort of his very earliest films, less so perhaps, but when you look at all of his earliest films and there's this idea of contagion, of sickness, of monsters growing in you. You have, um, so you've got shivers, uh -huh. um, which has a contagion inside a high rise building yes. um, that turns people into horny zombies. Mm -hmm. um you have um and then then you have rabbit mm -hmm. of course rabbit right Which um, is and that's interesting because marilyn chambers who's um placed the um placed the patient zero is of course not affected by the illness other than spreading it mm -hmm. through the extra appendage that has grown in her armpit yes and then the brood and the brood yeah as well and those are all, I mean, those are all different forms of contagion. Films, they're, yeah. yeah, they're all illness horrors, aren't they? Right, completely. And then the fly, he narrows it down to a different kind of disease. And he talks um, about how it was very often thought of as being about AIDS because it was 86. And he very, very explicitly at least says, and of course this may or not be, you know, it may not matter to how we read the film, but says that it's not at all about AIDS. It's actually about aging. And think about it that way. Right. Wow that we are all becoming flies. Um, we are all, we're all eventually going to become monstrous and need to die. Um, so that puts a different, a very different angle on the entire thing. And, it's, it, and the way in which we monster aging, the way in which we treat mm -hmm. signs of aging as monstrousness mm -hmm. is a thing that we often take for granted. Yeah. You've seen X, obviously. I have not. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then we won't go there. Think about, yeah, yeah. 
what you were just saying about aging when you see X, because I I was very disappointed <laughs> um, by what was otherwise I thought a really good film. But, I I, you know. I I've actually I actually won't see X um, because oh. it was directed by the guy who directed The Sacrament, which is the one film, the one horror film that actually made me angrier than any other. I haven't seen it. No, I that, that's it's based upon Jonestown. Oh, okay. Based on Jonestown and does it horrendously, horrendously oh. badly. Oh, okay. Well, that, then, then I feel better being mean about it. Well, that, can I can I spoil it then? Be mean about it, please. The, yeah. The, the evil, the, yeah. The, the evil monsters in in um, X are two old people, and they are absolutely horrifying because they're old, and they, you know, the reason that they become slashers is because they're old and they can't have sex with each other anymore, and so they've got to kill young people. And I was stunned that that was, you know, I was waiting for there to be surely something more to it, but that's really, yeah, it's completely about how monstrous old people are. I'm making a Zoe Deschanel whelp face at this point. <laughs> for and I mean, if others want to disagree with me and say that that's, a, you know, an, an, an exaggerate, you know, and I really wanted it to be good. I mean, I, yeah, um, the, it's, there, there are some really interesting things about the way it's filmed and, yeah but but really um i mean there there are a couple there's a scene with a an the older woman who approaches um uh the the person that she's that she is attracted to and you get, it's it's very clearly it's like every young kid who is utterly horrified by the thought of their parents or heaven forbid their grandparents having any kind of sex life at all it's exactly that you can imagine the audience being like oh no this is the most gross terrifying scary abject thing i've ever seen and it's the idea of old people having sex um which is interesting <laughs> and sad the, the idea of the abject is of course mm -hmm. pretty much where this comes from the abject is of course by definition unhealthy isn't it i mean yeah. i, I mean get rid of the, the theory of the abject probably would be very different if um judy christiva had actually switched to skimmed on for her cornflakes i think <laughs> go um, on the skin on the top of milk yeah which which i i agree with um yuck but yeah no, uh, yeah but i mean her, yes absolutely and and the psychoanalytic i mean I, yeah i'm not sure how much the psychoanalytic read of it is even necessary i mean so much of it is goes back you know further to Oh, the person whose name I'm blanking on, um, the anthropologist who wrote about, you know, dirt, um, is stuff that, yeah, you I'm know, who I'm, too, so, yeah, well, um, uh, yeah, when I remember, we'll yeah, <laughs> put it in the notes. Um, but but yeah, that the sort of obvious idea of of the need to dispose of that which is potentially dangerous. I mean, you know, you don't keep the corpse around for obvious reasons. Um, and therefore it is abjected and, and how that that works, you know, within our own sort of mental structures as well. That I mean, in many ways, yeah, I mean, medicine works by abjecting exactly the stuff that it also depends on in order to exist, that if those things weren't there, there would be no need for medicine. Um, wow, yeah, if people didn't get sick, they wouldn't be doctors. Right. That's one of those I mean, things that you don't actually sort of think about, but when that point is made to you, you go, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
it's, it's, there is a weird kind of relationship that medicine has with its subject, isn't there, in that respect? There's a lot of contradictions, that, like we talked earlier about detachment versus compassion and that sort of thing. Going back to the film um, Anatomy, Yes. The bad uh-huh. guys are the bad guys because they are the hilariously craply named <laughs> anti-Hippocratic society yeah. mm-hmm. who are essentially a group of doctors who don't believe you should be compassionate, that you should just mm-hmm. like be dispassionate and not care about the dignity of people, just see them as... Mm-hmm. Um, see them as subjects for your right. experiments right do harm if it if it furthers your science do harm um, if it furthers your science. It's, like, it's really the anti-ethical society the yes, medical society i don't think it's actually any less crap in the original german no no it, i mean i mean the, the dubbing is spectacularly awful and hilarious but um i i i, I admit i subbed that one Oh, yeah. yeah, I don't know that I had the option when I saw right. it. But anyway, either way, yeah. I mean, the, the dialogue is is quite something. Um, but it does go to that the whole idea of of yeah that the rite of passage to become a doctor is is to shut down certain parts of one's um, identity. And I and 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 I will say, I mean, in defense of you know like the work I do and the place I work, medical education is not what it used to be. It is very much improved and there is certainly a great deal more attention to that, um, you know, to the, the what is often called the humanistic aspects of medicine, which is not a term I love, but the, the idea that um, uh, ambivalence and, <laughs> and, and uh, uh, recognition of fallibility are, are actually really good for doctors as well as being better for patients. Um, and you know, which is part of what the medical humanities and ethics training does. Which is there's a lot more of it in medical schools than there used to be. Which is good. I mean, obviously, there's very, a subgenre, yeah. very small subgenre of films where doctors go wrong and mm-hmm. perform horrendously unethical things on their patients mm-hmm. or oh, yeah. choose their patients. So, for example, or a specific patient. So you think of Almodovar's The Skin I Live In. Yes. You think of Georges Fonju's um, Les Jeux Sans Visage, mm-hmm. um, Without a Face. Yeah. There was another one that, that popped into my head and is gone now. But you have a whole bunch of these, oh, Dead Ringers, obviously. Oh, oh I well, love yes. Which yeah. ties it all up with sexuality, straight guy mm-hmm. sexuality in a mm-hmm. particularly um, nasty way. Mm-hmm. And also with the twins, the kind of double double identity of the doctor is which of the yes. which of the two are you you know I mean you have this sort of really nice actual split personality of you know conjoined conjoined doctor identities. Um, the, yeah, yeah. yeah um, I mean a lot of a lot of this obviously goes back to Frankenstein too, and we always think of Frankenstein as the first mad scientist, but he's he's also a medical student. Um, although certainly not a clinician and that he never really treats right. uh, patients who are sick. He just uh, deals with dead bodies. He never gets past that first stage, right, until he manages to bring his experiment to life. Um, and this dear old Jekyll as well, Dr. Henry Jekyll as oh, well. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, who, uh, yes, of course, becomes Mr. Hyde. And mm-hmm. that's a particularly interesting one because his disease 
it's framed in a lot of ways as an addiction. Addiction. Because mm-hmm. um, Stevenson had um, addiction problems of his own. Mm-hmm. And you could read the original story, which isn't actually very long. It's only about 50 pages in the edition I've got. Right. This is a short little thing. But um, Jekyll's um, problem is framed as essentially alcoholism or a drug addiction including the way in which he feels brilliant when he's had his magic drink right and utterly uninhibited Mm -hmm. but something in him has gone he's smaller he has a haunting sense of unexpressed deformity as stevenson puts it that's lovely Um, yeah so the people look at him and think there's something wrong and having known some alcoholics in the past um who had not you know had not recovered and seeing how that disease expresses itself you can sort of see what is is lost when that addiction um takes over Mm -hmm. he reaches the point where he can no longer function without the drink and um i'm assuming you've read read the story Mm -hmm. long ago Uh, yeah Mm -hmm. but the bit the bit where he actually runs out of the essential salt and tries to get some more from the chemist Mm -hmm. only it's a different batch and no matter how many times he tries to get another batch he can't get it to work anymore Mm -hmm. because it turns out the impure batch was the first batch and he'll never and know. What he needs is the impurity rather than the recipe. Yes. Yeah. Which is, he, he was never in control of it, even when he thought he was. He was never in control of it, even when he thought he was. It's a wonderful way of putting it. And that addiction takes over and eventually destroys him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've been talking for a good solid hour, and I think that we could probably talk for another hour again if we're going on. <laughs> However, there's only so much you can get into one podcast episode, so mm-hmm. I'm going to knock it on the head now. Have you got any final mm-hmm. point that you'd really like to make, Catherine? Uh, too many. Um, yeah, it would be good to go on having this conversation. I mean, I think, I think mostly, I, I think, I think horror. Uh, I mean, I just, just, yeah, medicine and horror are really closely connected. And um, I think that uh, that's probably about where I'd end. Um, uh, my head is too full of all the different things we've talked about. But, but yeah, um, it's a useful, it's a useful uh, sort of filter to put over a lot of very familiar stories that we don't think of as being related to healthcare or to medicine. And once you start right. seeing it, you see it everywhere and I think it can shift the way that we think about health yeah. um, and what is defined as health, which I think can be a very tyrannical definition and a very you know, uh, unreasonable expectation of both, you know, people who are healthcare providers and, and, of, and of human beings that, you know, health yeah. is, is, is a dangerous concept in some ways. And I think horror helps us think through the idea of health in, in maybe healthy ways, how's that? <laughs> more healthy ways, more productive ways. I think that is a fantastic place 
<laughs> stop thank you again for coming on it's been brilliant thank you howard it's been a real pleasure Questioning Bodies is an independent podcast hosted and edited by me, Howard David Ingham. Music is by Stephen Horry. Thanks for listening. <laughs>